God is dead. That's what Friedrich Nietzsche had to say in his famous madman scene. God is dead and we killed him. Now Nietzsche had his own reasons for saying this and we might actually even be okay with the God Nietzsche condemns slipping off into oblivion. But for most of us, the result is the same. God is dead. It wasn't too long after this that we began hearing all those things associated with God weren't long for the world either. And in 2009, Newsweek ran its famous article on the decline of religion in America. We already knew that our attendance and baptism rates were shrinking. And we knew our budgets were getting smaller and smaller each year. But now we were told there was no cure. The church was on life support, and the world was about to pull the plug. Remember when that first came out, there was so much fear. We were all scared to death that death would get the final word. And to hear the way we still talk about our youth when they run off to join the academy, we're probably still running a little bit scared. There are two people in our text for today, a man and a woman, who are no strangers to the fear of death that plagues us. It's one of those Markin sandwiches that Drs. Arterbury and Garland taught us could be so very nourishing. And so we're meant to read the stories together, letting the flavors mix and meld into a smorgasbord for the soul. As Mark lays down that first slice of bread, we're introduced to a man named Jairus. He's a synagogue ruler with a very precarious future. His daughter lies ill, dying even. And like any good father, he's trying to prevent that happening. As Jesus steps to the shore, Jairus runs up to greet him. He's a man with a great deal of responsibility and perhaps even more dignity, but all that's out the window when it comes to his daughter. He falls at Jesus' feet and begs for Jesus to come and heal his little girl. Without a moment's hesitation, Jesus agrees to follow him home. Jesus is kind of known for doing everything immediately there in Mark's gospel. But Jairus wasn't the only one to find Jesus there beside the Sea of Galilee. This is wont to happen in Mark's telling. Jesus finds himself surrounded by a large crowd. Can you imagine the frustration of that? Knowing that on the other side of this huge throng of people lies a little girl that you can help, that you want to help, but before you can do it, you have to get through all of these people that are here just to shake your hand, or just to stop by for a little chat, or who simply want to go home and tell their family what they saw the famous miracle worker do that day. And they don't get it. And what's more, you know they don't care enough to get it. You just want to get through them so that you can do the thing you know you came to do. And ministry feels like that a lot. You find yourself picking out carpet colors or crunching budgets or all those things you feel you have to do so that you can do the kingdom work on the other side. But you never really know what you're going to run into in the middle of the crowd, do you? 
And we don't really get to decide for ourselves what constitutes kingdom work. So for Jesus, like any faithful pastor, it's once more into the breach. No matter what, that's still the only way to the other side. That's still the only way to Jairus' daughter. As Jesus presses through the crowd, he's blissfully unaware of just who he's passing by. Now really, she shouldn't even be there. She has a problem. It's been her time of the month, each day for the last 12 years. It's not that she hasn't tried to fix it, she has. She spent every penny she had on doctors, and they gladly took her money, but they couldn't diagnose her, much less cure her. And so now she's unclean, forever condemned to wander the highways and the byways, avoiding all contact with people. She's not even supposed to talk to them except to tell them to stay away. And can you imagine, fathom the despair that's bred by 12 years of nobody touching you? Nobody coming up to shake your hand or ruffle your hair Nobody coming up for a hug. Not even those awkward side hugs that Christians love so much. We think that ministry's lonely. This woman may be alive, but she's not really living. For all intents and purposes, this woman is socially dead. And she shouldn't even be here. But she is here And somehow she knows that if she can just get up to Jesus, if she can touch his clothes, then maybe she'll be healed. Nothing else has worked. This is a desperate attempt by a desperate woman, but it's all she has left. And so she presses through the crowd, throws herself into it, not giving a thought to all the people she makes unclean as she jostles them out of the way. And then she gets there. To Jesus. And she reaches out, and the tips of her fingers barely catch the hem of Jesus' cloak, and immediately she's healed. Suddenly, Jesus is paying attention. You'd have thought he'd done it before, but better late than never. He asks the question Who touched me? The disciples have all been running interference, but they take the time to turn around and shoot him a look that says, really, Jesus, really? You're asking that question? Really? You're surrounded by a huge crowd of people. Jesus, who didn't touch you? Come on, man. But somehow this touch was different. It was more than a poke or a prod. Something actually left him. And so he's insistent. Who? touched me. This woman, scared to death, falls trembling at Jesus' feet. But Jesus doesn't leave her there. He picks her up, looks her square in the eye and says, your faith has made you well. She can go in peace. And she can rest assured that this fix is permanent. It was no magic trick, no sleight of hand, if you will, that healed her. 
It was her trust in Jesus. This woman was socially dead. But I guess it's just dangerous to declare anything dead when Jesus is still around. And now she lives again. And that's all well and good, but we've gotten a bit distracted, haven't we? We're supposed to be on our way to Jairus' house. Can you imagine that moment of sheer panic when he reaches the other side of the crowd and turns around only to see Jesus isn't with him? He's still standing there in the middle of this huge group of people talking to some woman. And Jairus' words have to be running through his head something like, Hey, lady. What are you thinking? He's supposed to be with me. My daughter is dying. Whatever your problem is, it can wait just a little bit longer, don't you think? But it's too late. As he prepares to launch himself back into the crowd to go fetch Jesus, he's tapped on the shoulder. He turns around and it's one of his servants. His daughter is dead. That's not the kind of news you take well. It's a world-ending kind of news. It was the news heard all too recently in our own family by the parents of Jake Gibbs. It was the news that stopped Trayvon Martin's parents in their tracks when They heard their son was shot dead wielding a bag of Skittles. It's the news heard all too frequently by the parents of young men and women sent to fight in Afghanistan or Iraq. It's just not news you take well. And nor should you. It's some of the worst news that anyone could ever receive. And like a good pastor, Jesus chooses this moment to be at Jairus' side. But what he says probably isn't what Dr. Creech would recommend you say in this type of situation. His first words to a grieving parent are the words, fear not. That's not exactly giving Jairus the time or permission that he needs to grieve. That's very unpastoral of Jesus right there. And then he goes on to tell this father dealing with the issues of despair, denial. He plays to his favorite delusion and says, don't worry, she's just asleep. Very unpastoral indeed. Jesus probably could have benefited from having taken life and work of a pastor class. What's more, Jesus says this all again when they finally reach the house. It's surrounded by professional mourners there to give voice to the screams and the laments that are still caught in the parents' throats. A man of Jairus' stature would have musicians there as well. A funeral dirge spills from the mouth of the flute. And it's not the on the way back from the cemetery in New Orleans kind of dirge. No, this is the kind of dirge that says, it's okay to be sad right now. Death has taken someone important. They all laugh when Jesus says otherwise. Maybe this healer is having some denial issues of his own. He can't conceive of a world in which he fails to help someone he'd promised to help. 
And so he thinks, oh, no, she's got to be just sleeping. But Jesus stops the morning. He stops the music, sends everyone outside until it's just himself, the parents, and a handful of disciples alone in a room surrounding the still frame of a 12-year-old girl. I imagine that the music has to pick up again outside. It's a not-so-subtle reminder that death is there in the room with them. But death doesn't have to have the final word. The last person Jesus healed reached out to touch him, but that's not really an option this time. And so in a moment reminiscent of creation, he breathes out the words of grace and she breathes in the breath of life. And she rises and she walks around and they bring her breakfast. And it's Jairus' turn to run outside and say, no, no, silence the flute. My daughter still lives. I guess it's just Dangerous to declare anything dead when Jesus is around. So what of the church? Newsweek says we're on our way out. Culture says it's uncool to be Christian. And there are many scientists, philosophers, and even biblical scholars and theologians who'd be happy to tell us that belief in God is no longer tenable. It's true that things look pretty grim. Al Mohler might tell us it's because the church has lost its doctrinal way. The music minister looking for a new way of doing worship says it's because the church has lost its cultural relevance. And the eminent ethicist Stanley Hauerwas would tell us it's because the church has sold its soul to the presuppositions of modern liberal democracy. With all these varied diagnoses, some of which are probably more true than others, it's hard to know where to start. But I guess the truth of the matter is, we don't have to start it. Jesus' words to a bleeding woman were, go, your faith has healed you. And his first words to a grieving parent were, fear not and believe. We don't have to worry about the fate of the church because the church was never our responsibility. What's more, resurrection has never been our responsibility. Our job as ministers of the gospel is to believe and help others to believe. Our job is to have faith, to fear not in the direst of circumstances We do the work of the church. We move through her seasons living and teaching in the rhythms of grace and forgiveness. We comfort the outcast, feed the hungry, and we proclaim the good news. And then we trust in God. And our text today tells us that that trust will not be misplaced. So silence the flute. It's too dangerous to declare anything dead when Jesus is around. And if Easter tells us anything, 
is that he isn't dead either. And so we say it loudly, we say it truly, all together now. Christ is risen. You can do better than that. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And if he lives, then so shall we, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Oh, the church may change, but she won't die. Or if she must die, it's only to live again. Thanks be to God. Amen.